Aloha, everyone. <laughs> Huge thank you to everyone who made it possible for us to be gone last week. Uh, Robin waited a long time for me to finally splurge and take her to Hawaii, and it did not disappoint. Uh, God was showing off when he made those islands. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. And um, we missed you guys, so got to worship with a, a local congregation there in Honolulu. It was good to see what God's doing in those islands, but glad to be back with you guys this morning. And I'm wearing this subtly patterned shirt uh, as a way of um, uh, objecting to the idea that we had to come back. I missed you guys, but I want to stay there for a long time. So uh, let's turn over to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 12. I know it's been a couple weeks since we were in the text together. The last passage that we read together uh, included John's description of what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday when Jesus is welcomed as royalty into the city of Jerusalem. So this marks the beginning of what we typically refer to as Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and then eventually his resurrection. And so we're in John chapter 12 this morning and we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 36. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are so excited that you decided to make time to be with us. We hope you're encouraged and uplifted by your time with us this morning. And in case this series is of interest to you, uh, you're welcome to go back at any time on our website or our social media channels. You can find a uh, back catalog of these lessons. We've been in John for a while and I am enjoying it immensely. I hope everyone else is as well. So John chapter 12 let me just read through the text and then we'll work through it together. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So a few things. First of all, just a reminder of the text that we covered a couple weeks ago that actually sets up the passage that we're in this morning. In verses 17 through 19, 
we read this, and this is the end of that triumphal entry. It says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. What word? The word about what Jesus had been doing. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And then as if on cue, who shows up but the whole world? Now we've got some Greeks, the Gentiles. Those outside of the nation of Israel are looking for an audience with Jesus. And so that's what this is about, is these people outside of Israel wanting to seek out Jesus and find time to be with him. And so it says there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida, maybe because he spoke Greek, in Galilee with a request, Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. So Philip goes and tells Andrew, and then the two of them together go and tell Jesus. Now, a few things. Number one, let me just tell you this. So I've told you before, one of the highlights of every week for me is Thursday and Friday morning, I get to take the students from our school over here, and we do chapel service together, and we sing some songs, and we've kind of settled on five or six songs that the kids really like to sing every time we're together. But the last one we sing every time is their favorite by far. Tell me if you know this one. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right? No, we're not going to do all the stuff. Okay, anyway, you know the song, right? And if you don't, you're probably thinking, okay, it's catchy, but what is that song about? The kids love it because we do all these gestures and it gets them excited and they like to be silly about it. But I'm careful every time I sing that with them. Before we sing the song, I remind them what the song is about. Why would we sing a song about Father Abraham? My dad's name is Larry. Why am I singing about Father Abraham? I'm not Jewish. Why am I singing about Father Abraham? And so my way of reminding them, I just say this every time. I say, remember, Abraham was a man who trusted God. And God made him a promise. And when God makes promises, he always keeps his promises. The promise God made to Abraham is that God would give him a huge family. But not only that, every family in the whole world would come to know about God and his great love because of Abraham's family. And so what I tell them is, if you trust in God, like Abraham trusted in God, then we become children of Abraham, and we get to sing about Father Abraham, right? So remember Genesis chapter 12, the promise God originally made to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and what? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise God made to Abraham. And we are here today because of that promise. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, pay attention to the wording here. God is speaking about what he would do through Israel. This is a point in Israel's history where they were in need of redemption. But God is saying, look, my end goal here isn't just to bring Israel back to me. It's, as TJ pointed out this morning, to bring all people back into relationship with him. And so listen to what he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant 
to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Am I going to bring Abraham's descendants back? Yes, but it's not going to end there because that's too small a thing for the God we serve. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach how far? To the ends of the earth. I know you know these things. I'm just reminding you. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at this very same time in Jesus' ministry, they record something John doesn't. John, in John chapter 2, tells us about the first time Jesus got emotional and cleansed the temple. But he did it a second time. And the synoptics record that. And that happens at this very same time that we're reading about in John. It's right after the triumphal entry. Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple again. And I want to read you Mark's account. Pay attention to what happens here. It says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but listen to this, for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. One of the things that made Jesus so upset here is this part about the temple being a house of prayer for all nations. The way that the temple, that second temple was constructed is you had a series of courts. And the outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles. This is where those Greek, uh, non-Jewish, Gentile, God-fearing people were welcome to come as they approached the presence of God and sought out a relationship with the God of the Israelites. But that's also where all of these merchants had set up shop, and it was making it difficult for the Gentiles to get close to God. That's one of the reasons why Jesus is so upset here and points out the fact that this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. But you're not making it possible for them to come to me. And again, let me remind you of this. John chapter 10, passage we looked at several weeks ago, and referring to himself as the great shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. I'm not coming just to redeem Israel because that's too small a thing for the God that we serve. I have other sheep. And then again in John chapter 11, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Again, just a lengthy reminder so that you're not surprised by the fact, because we shouldn't be, that Gentiles are interested in Jesus. Of course they are, especially those God-fearing Gentiles, because they're hearing what's happening and they want to be a part of that. It shouldn't come as a surprise that some Greeks are seeking an audience with Jesus. This is all according to God's plan from the very beginning. But what is surprising is Jesus' reply. Okay, so you've got two disciples that come to Jesus and say, hey, there's some Greeks who want to see you. It seems like the response should either be, okay, bring them over, I've got time, or maybe another time. But the way Jesus responds seems like, at first blush, that it doesn't have anything to do 
with the fact that these Greeks are seeking an audience with him. It's kind of a surprising response. Here's Jesus' reply. Okay, so you can imagine Philip and Andrew in front of Jesus. Hey, there's some Greeks here who want to see you. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is that an answer to that? What, what, what does this have to do with anything? And so we need to take a deeper look at this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. First of all, let me show you something. If you've been paying attention throughout our study, then these words should really get you excited because something has changed. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's been a consistent message that his time has not yet come. All the way back in John chapter 2, the first miracle that Jesus performs when they run out of wine at the wedding, and who is it that tells him, hey, wink, wink, nod, nod, they're out of wine. It's his mom, right? It's Mary. And when Mary says that to him, his response is, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. All throughout the Gospel of John, there's this buildup towards this hour that's coming. Later on in John chapter 7 and verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Again, in chapter 8, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. We find that consistently, and all of a sudden now in chapter 12, something changes. The hour has come. That thing that Jesus is looking forward to throughout his entire ministry is now here. The hour has come, but what hour? What is it that's going to happen? This is what he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we already read through the passage, so we know what he's talking about. What is he referencing? His death. Everything he's about to say is about his death, the crucifixion that awaits him. But Jesus doesn't use that verbiage. He doesn't say, my death is at hand. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is it then that the death of Jesus is also the glorification of Jesus? And that's a question that we have to ask, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. So Jesus begins to talk about his death, and over the next handful of verses, we learn three important things about the death of Jesus, why he was going to die, and what that death would accomplish or bring about. And I'm going to cover these quickly for time's sake, but I hope and I pray that you will spend some time thinking through these things this week. Number one is that a community will be born out of his death. He says this, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. That's all it will ever be. One kernel, one seed. But if it falls to the ground and dies, what happens? It gives life. And it says, but if it dies, it produces what? Many seeds. A movement is going to be born as a result of the death of Jesus. Is that what happened historically? Are we in Mission Viejo in the year 2024 gathered here because a movement in a community was born as a result of the death of Jesus? Yes. This is exactly what he was talking about. But what kind of community? Listen to what he says next. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he talking about? Is Jesus asking us to be miserable on his account? That we should just 
go around perpetually upset because we hate life so much? No, that's not what he's talking about at all. There's joy to be found in discipleship, to be certain. But listen, how many people in this world, and we struggle with this, all of us, how many people in this life, in this world, spend all of our time afraid to let go of the things in this world that we love so much? We love this life, and we love this world, and we love it too much. And when you spend all of your life terrified of the reality that one day you will have to let go, you live in paralysis your entire life. And the sad reality is that the more you try to protect the things in this world that you love, the more that weighs on you because inevitably what's going to happen to every single one of us? There's going to come a time where we have to let go of those things because our time on earth will come to an end. If you live life only for this world and the things in this world are all that there is for you, they're the only things that bring you joy, then you're setting yourself up for heartbreak because those things will be gone one day. There are things more permanent than the things in this world. Jesus is trying to show those things to us. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. Inevitably. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Imagine a life so focused on Christ that you're no longer afraid of death. When you can live a life free from the fear of death, what happens? Well, then you've been set free to really live. To really live. And to really follow Jesus. Because Jesus is going to ask you to go places that you would never go if you're only focused on this world. You're just never going to go there. How are you going to follow Jesus where he asks you to go if what he asks of you might require you to give up even your own life? That's the reality that faced these early disciples, was it not? How many of them were martyred because of their faith? How was it that they could face that reality because they love Christ so much that they were willing to give up the things of this world in, in order to free them to live for the world that comes next? And I know we're here today because we're all striving towards that, but be honest with yourself. How much time this last week did you spend concerned about the things of this world? How much time? Probably the majority of your time. If you're still working, probably the majority of your time. Right? Because this is what the world does. It takes all of our attention away from what matters. He's offering us a different way of looking at the world and at life. That's the kind of community that he's going to build. A community that is free to follow him wherever he goes. And listen to what he says. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I am my servant will be also. Now, I want to encourage you for just a second. Don't think about this purely in, in geographical terms. He's not saying you have to come with me physically wherever I go, although that's what he's asking them to do at, at the time. What's going to happen when he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1? Did he leave them? Well, no, that's the exciting thing that comes next. In John chapter 14 through 16, he says, i got to go, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't think about your relationship with Jesus in terms of geography. Think about it relationally. And listen to this. 
In 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And listen, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. We get to be with him forever. And that's the kind of community he's dying to establish. So number one, he came to build a community. Number two, what will happen through his death? God will be glorified. I already asked you to think about that question. How is it that through the death of Jesus, he will actually be glorified? And more specifically, how will the name of the Father be glorified through the death of Jesus? Listen to what he says. Now my soul is troubled. He's borrowing language from David in the Psalms. His soul is troubled. He knows what is required of him. And so he asks this question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That would be the natural response. You're facing your own death. What are you going to pray? Save me from death. But Jesus says that's not an option for me because it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Everything I've been doing has been building up to this moment, and this is why I came, in order to give my life. So he says, no, instead of asking the Father to save me, I'm going to ask this, Father, glorify your name. Bring glory to your name through what I'm about to undergo. And then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. By the way, the synoptics record two different times when God's voice comes down from heaven, one at the baptism of Jesus and later on in his transfiguration. John doesn't record either of those. This is the only time John records the voice of the Father coming down from heaven. And people are confused by what they're hearing, but I want you to think with me for just a minute about this. How is it that God's name is glorified through the death of Jesus? Or another way to ask that question is this. What do we learn about the nature of God himself through the death of Jesus? And John answers that question for us in another place. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 8-10, through 10, he says this, Whoever does not love does not know God, for, what? God is love. How do we know that? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How is it that the name of God is glorified through the death of Jesus? It's because through the death of Jesus, we finally see who God is. God's glory is revealed most fully through the death of his son. When he says to us, I love you this much. And then makes that sacrifice in order to redeem us. That's how the name of God is glorified. When you sing glory to the name of your Father, why do you do that? What has prompted you to give glory to His name in your life? Is it not the fact that He loved you that much that He gave His Son for you? We really learn who God is through this reality that the Son came to die and He did it willingly and He did it out of obedience to the Father because of the great love that he has for us.
Number three, the whole world's going to be changed. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. The world is going to be judged. But not only that, now the prince of this world will be driven out. The enemy will be defeated because of the death of Jesus. This is the final blow to Satan. This is conquering whatever power Satan has on this earth. The prince of this world will be driven out. And I, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The world's going to change forever because of my death. Did the world change forever? The moment Jesus hung on that cross. Absolutely it did. Listen to what he says here, though. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This goes back to what we started talking about, that global reach of God's love, God's desire to redeem all people back to himself. And here, actually, is the answer to the question those Greeks were asking. When they said, we want to see Jesus, and Jesus seems to go off on this tangent that doesn't have anything to do with that, this has everything to do with those people seeking Jesus. Because he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Those Greeks that are seeking after me, what I'm about to do is for them, in order to bring them to me. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And he does something in his verbiage here that's very important. The words that Jesus uses take us back to Isaiah chapter 53. Of all the messianic prophecies, it's probably the most well-known, and I know maybe the most well-loved by a lot of people, that suffering servant passage where we learn so much about who Messiah was going to be. But actually that passage begins... Prior to chapter 53, it begins in Isaiah chapter 52. And in starting in verse 13, that suffering servant is introduced this way. God says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted or glorified. Notice the similarities in the language. Jesus is using the exact same words that are used here for the suffering servant. That servant will be lifted up. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What is that lifting up a reference to, according to John? His death. The kind of death he would die, because how was Jesus killed? Elevated on a cross. He's pointing us back to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And then this other word here, and will be highly exalted. The word there is the same word that Jesus used. It's translated here as glorified. He will be glorified. Now we talked about it a few weeks ago, but we'll continue to talk about it as we move towards that event. As Jesus hung on the cross, that humiliating death, in reality what's happening? He's being crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is being glorified. But this language he's using is very purposeful. And it's taking back taking us back to this messianic prophecy, and it's trying to get us to think, is Jesus the fulfillment of that promise God made in Isaiah 52 and 53? And in fact, that's the very question this crowd begins to ask. So they hear everything he's saying in response, and they have a wait, what moment? Like, what does that mean? And so this is what they say. The crowd spoke up, they've got two questions, and we'll end with this. 
Number one, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Notice here that they understand intuitively that he's talking about his death. The scripture informs us that when Messiah comes, he will remain forever. So if you're Messiah, why are you talking about dying? That doesn't make sense. They're still trying to figure this whole puzzle out. Are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for or not? If you're pointing us back to Isaiah 53, are you that Messiah or not? We've heard that Messiah will last forever. Where do they get that idea from? That the Messiah can't die, that he will remain forever. That's question number one. Question number two is this. Who is this son of man? They like to refer to Jesus as son of David. He liked to refer to himself as son of man. Where does that terminology come from? And who is this son of man? And both of those questions are answered in the same place. The passage that Brady read for us this morning. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a famous passage, and it tells us a lot about what God had in store. In verses 13 and 14, Daniel's given a vision, and he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Did you catch that? Everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They know what Jesus is saying. If you are the Son of Man we've been waiting for then how can you be referencing your death? Because when the Son of Man comes, what is he bringing with him? A kingdom that will never end. How are you going to rule forever if you're telling us you're about to die? Do you see why they're struggling with this? And we've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. They've got these preconceived ideas of who Messiah would be, and they're struggling with all of it. Hey, when Messiah comes, isn't he going to do more miracles than this guy? Hey, when Messiah comes, surely he can't come from Nazareth, can he? They're struggling with all of this. And the same thing here, if you are Messiah, if you are the Son of Man promised to us, then you can't die because the kingdom you're about to build is going to last forever. And so their wheels are spinning. And they're trying to figure out, is he the one we've been looking for or not? We already know that their expectation is built up because how did they receive him into Jerusalem? Son of David. But their wheels are spinning. And so we go back to John chapter 12. It says, Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus ends this whole conversation with another invitation into belief. Believe in me. Believe in the light. Now is your opportunity to put your trust in me. And John does what he so masterfully does throughout every passage that we've been reading in John. He leaves us with the same invitation. As readers, we're in the same spot now, trying to answer the same question. Is Jesus the one we've been waiting for or not? Look at what Jesus does at the end of this. 
This passage begins with a group of people trying to find him. And it ends with Jesus doing what? Hiding himself from the crowds. Do you know who Jesus is? Are you one of those people still seeking him out? Do you have questions? Please, give us an opportunity. Ask those questions. Let us study with you. Let us show you how Scripture can illuminate those answers for you. Are you one of those people who was pretty sure they knew what God's will was, and now Jesus has thrown you for a loop? Are you ready to trust fully? Or are you like the disciples? Are you all in at this point in time? And yet still wondering what comes next. Listen, the reason that these people are struggling with this is because until they saw God's plan carried out, until they witnessed the crucifixion, until they witnessed the resurrection, they simply did not have the ability to understand it fully. We stand on a different side of history. We know what happened. We know why it happened. We know how it happened. And we get to celebrate. We know who Jesus is and we can put our trust fully in him. So, question for you this morning, and as you think about this question, I invite you to stand and sing this last song with us. Question for you this morning is, are you ready to put your trust fully in him? If so, let's make that decision together today. If you're not quite ready, but you want to know more, please, will you come and find me afterwards? Give me an opportunity to study with you and share the hope that we have in the scriptures. However it is that we might be able to serve you, we pray that you give us that opportunity today. Let's stand, let's sing this song together, and if there's anything we can do for you, please, won't you come down and let me know. Let's sing together. Lord, the light of your love is shining In the midst of the darkness shining Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us Set us free by the truth you now bring us Shine on me Shine on me Shine, Jesus, shine Fill this land with the Father's glory Blaze, Spirit, blaze Set our hearts on fire Flow, river, flow Flood the nations with grace and mercy shadows into your radiance by the blood i may enter your brightness search me try me consume all my darkness shine on me shine on me shine jesus shine fill this land with the father's glory Set our hearts on fire, flow, river, flow, flood the nations with grace and mercy, send forth.